Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 199 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the mystery of inflation and the pocketbook pain it causes. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, here on Mysterious World, we have certain tropes that turn up from time to time. One is... It's always aliens, or another is it's always demons, because those are the two explanations for mysteries that people tend to leap to. When we're covering an historical mystery, and Jimmy mentions how much something cost in the past, he'll often mention how much it would cost in today's dollars, and then he'll add, because of the inflation the government has caused. Well, listeners like you have noticed, and we've been getting requests for Jimmy to explain. So what is inflation? Why does it happen? And why does Jimmy say the government is responsible? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, to begin, I want to throw to you again. Why did you want to cover this topic? Well, because of the questions that we've gotten from listeners and because inflation is back in the news this year. A long time ago, I did a study of economics and learned that the government is responsible for the inflation we experience. So for me, it's just a piece of background knowledge. And I started mentioning it briefly on Mysterious World as a helpful reminder to people to keep things in perspective and not look upon inflation as if it's a force of nature, as just something that naturally happens or that is fated to happen. And for curious listeners, there are lots of resources out there to explain why inflation occurs. So I really didn't originally plan on explaining it, but I always want to be responsive to listener inquiries. And since the U.S. is currently experiencing a significant amount of inflation, it's been in the news and more people are asking about it. So I decided to cover it on the show. So if you're talking about U.S. currency, does that mean this episode won't be of interest to people in other countries? No, it will be of interest. And for two reasons. First, the U.S. dollar is a key global currency that plays an important role in stabilizing world markets. That's been the case since the Bretton Woods Agreement after World War II, which we talked about back in episode 136 on the Great Reset. If the U.S. dollar devalues due to inflation, it has implications for countries all over the world. So this episode will be of interest to people for that reason. Secondly, the same principles that apply to the U.S. economy apply everywhere, and lots of other governments cause inflation for their people. So listeners elsewhere in the world can apply these principles to what they see happening in their own countries. In fact, we'll also be looking at examples from other countries because the laws of economics are the same in every nation, and every country has lessons to learn from what others have discovered with inflation. So generally, adults are more aware of inflation than children are. So is this episode primarily for the adults in our audience? 
I'm sure that what we'll be talking about will be a little abstract for younger children. However, I'm going to keep things simple and try to discuss them as clearly as possible. So the material should be within the reach of older children. And parents can do their children a favor by having them listening to this episode. Um, the inflation that the government is causing today will have significant repercussions for children. When they grow up and become adults, they're gonna have to make a living and they're gonna have to deal with the inflation that the government has caused. That means that the sooner they understand the concept of inflation, the better a position they'll be in with regard to planning their own financial futures, with seeing through the lies and distortions of politicians and the media, and with voting and advocating for better policies that could help avoid a potential economic collapse. Now, something you make a point of on the show is steering clear of politics, at least most of the time. Is this a political issue? Questions about specific policies can involve politics. And although I definitely have political opinions, I'm cynical about politicians. Politicians of all parties use misdirection, spin, and baffle gab to try to make their economic policies look good and keep voters from realizing what's going on. As they say in the 1956 musical Little Abner, as long as no one knows where no one stands they can project the illusion that the country's in the very best of hands. Although politicians make policies that affect the economy of the nation, it's the economy itself and how it works that we're interested in here. And economies are something that human beings create. And like any human phenomena, economies can be studied, even scientifically studied. And so that's really what we're interested in in this episode. It's not politics, but science, specifically the science of economics. People hear the word economics a lot, but they rarely hear it defined. So what does economics mean? A classic definition is provided by the British economist Lionel Robbins. Economics is the study of the use of scarce resources that have alternative uses. To understand this, you need to think about two concepts, scarce resources and alternative uses. We often think of economics as involving money, but it doesn't have to. Anytime you have a limited resource that you could put to more than one use, you're dealing with an economic question. And since all of us have limited resources and we need to decide what to do with them all, all of us are making economic decisions all the time, even if they have nothing to do with money. To make that concept clear, can you give an example of an economic decision that does not involve money? Sure. Time. Time is a limited resource, and we all have a limited amount of time on this earth, and we can use our time to do different things. So time has alternative uses, and we need to decide how we'll spend it. Let's say that you've got a given stretch of time, let's say a couple hours after dinner in an evening, and you and your spouse are deciding what you're going to do with it. Well, the time that you've got is a resource, but it's limited. It's only a couple of hours. The time also has multiple uses because you could do different things in that time. For example, you and your spouse might decide to watch a movie. And let's say it's a movie on a streaming service you've already paid for, so you're not out any money. Money isn't involved. Or alternatively, the two of you might decide to play a board game or a video game together. 
And let's say it's a game you've already paid for, so again, money isn't involved. In this case, you've got a limited resource, the two hours you have together after dinner, but it's got alternative uses, like watching a movie or playing a game. So you now have an economic decision to make. How will you use your limited resource? On which of the alternative uses will you spend it? In deciding this question, you and your spouse will consider things like how much you think you'll enjoy the movie compared to how much you'll think you'll enjoy the game, and ultimately you come to a decision. By doing that, you've just conducted a tiny, informal, economic study on what alternative is the time best spent. And since you could have spent the time in more than one way, the decision you came to was an economic one. Only you were practicing economy with your time rather than your money, since both the streaming service and the game had already been paid for. Then let's look at a simple economic decision involving money. Okay, let's back up a couple hours to when you and your spouse were deciding what to eat for dinner. Let's say that you decided to order out and your budget allows you to spend $40 on the meal tonight. That $40 is a limited resource and it has alternative uses. You could use the $40 to order Chinese food or you could use the $40 to order Italian food. You and your spouse think about the pleasure that you'd get from eating Chinese tonight compared to the pleasure that you'd get from eating Italian. And so you do another tiny informal economic study. And again, you arrive at an economic decision on which alternative you'll spend the limited resource of $40. In both cases, in deciding what you'll order for dinner and in deciding what you'll do with your time after dinner, you're doing informal economic studies involving your limited resources of time and money and what alternatives you should put them to. So all of us are functioning informally as economists all the time. But some people do it more formally. They undertake large-scale studies of the economic decisions made by millions or billions of people, and they put the results in scholarly books and papers. These put the study of economics on a scientific basis, and thus we're dealing with the science of economics. Let's talk about inflation now. We have a sense of what it is, but just to be clear, let's define it. The basic concept of inflation is prices going up. For example, suppose that one day you go to the store and you see that a bag of jelly beans costs a dollar. Then a month later, you go back to the store and you see that the same bag of jelly beans now costs two dollars. In this case, the price of jelly beans has gone up. It's inflated. Specifically, it's inflated by 100% since the price has doubled. This represents inflation regarding a single item, but what economists do is average the price of a bunch of different goods and services, not just jelly beans, across the whole economy. And if the average price of the goods and services that are available in the economy goes up, then the overall economy has experienced inflation. That's what we're referring to when we talk about inflation in the general sense. Inflation is an overall rise of the prices of goods and services in an economy. The American public is so used to inflation that we don't often think about alternatives to it, but there can be a parallel phenomenon known as deflation. Tell us about that. 
Well, as you'd expect, deflation occurs on average when prices go down. Like if you go to the store and you see that a bag of jelly beans that cost $2 last month only costs a dollar now. The price of the jelly beans has deflated. We often see deflation occurring in certain sectors of the economy. For example, it happens with technology because we're living in a period of technological improvement. That's why only a decade ago, you might have spent $2,000 for a computer that you'd only pay $1,000 for today. Or a phone that cost $1,000 10 years ago might only cost $500 today. Technological innovation drives the prices of technology down and thus deflates them. But deflation can occur on a broader scale than just the price of an individual item or sector in the economy. It can occur over the economy as a whole. This is very unfamiliar to people in America today because over the last century, the U.S. government has pursued policies that were designed to cause inflation. It hasn't been a question of if inflation would occur, just how much of it there would be. But in the 19th century, the U.S. government didn't consistently pursue inflationary policies. As a result, there were periods in the 19th century where prices on average went down across the economy. In other words, there were periods of deflation in which the purchaser benefited by on average lower prices, meaning he had more spending power for his dollar. But that was unpopular with certain people, and we haven't had a significant period of overall deflation since the early 1930s. Why was deflation unpopular? People love it when prices go down. One of the reasons deflation was unpopular is that the impact of inflation and deflation depends heavily on the extent to which a society relies on debt. If you're a debtor, if you owe money that you'll have to pay back, then deflation hurts you because the dollars you have to pay back are now worth more than they were when you took out a loan. By contrast, if you owe money and inflation is happening, you get to pay back your loan in dollars that are worth less. So the more debt people in a nation have, the more inclined they will be towards inflation and the less inclined they will be towards deflation. There's one more term we ought to talk about before we get to the causes of inflation, and that's hyperinflation. What does this term mean? As the name suggests, it's a period of very high inflation. There isn't a universally agreed upon definition of hyperinflation in terms of a specific percentage of inflation that's needed to qualify as hyper, but there are different standards that have been proposed. One definition was proposed in 1956 by the economist Philip Kagan, and he suggested that hyperinflation occurs whenever the rate of inflation is 50% or more in a a single month. By that standard, if you go to the store after a month and the jelly beans that used to cost a dollar now cost two dollars, then the that's more than 50% of an increase, so the price of jelly beans is hyperinflated. But 50% in a single month is a really high rate, and the International Accounting Standards Board has proposed a different set of criteria for hyperinflation. One of the indicators they use is a cumulative rate of inflation of 100% over a three-year period. By that standard, if you went back to the store after a period of three years, 
and the price of jelly beans had doubled, then it would have experienced hyperinflation. You might think that this would be an inflation rate if it's 100% over three years. You might think, oh, that's 33% a year. But that's not how cumulative percentages work. In actuality, you'd only need a 26% inflation rate for prices to double in three years. So over time, cumulative percentages can sneak up on you and have a bigger impact than you'd think. Haven't some countries gotten into real problems with hyperinflation? They have, and a classic example is Weimar Germany. This refers to the period in Germany between the two world wars. Specifically, it refers to the period of the Weimar Republic, which came into power in 1918 and remained in power until 1933 when Hitler took control. The Weimar Republic was a democracy, but it pursued really bad economic policies. These were caused in part by the bad situation that the Republic found itself in. At the end of World War I, the Allies, and particularly the French, insisted on harsh conditions being imposed on Germany, including large amounts of financial war reparations. And these could not be paid in German currency, but only in gold or foreign currency, and that drove the Weimar Republic to some of the policies it adopted. Over time, a variety of factors caused so much pain that it made people desperate for anyone who could offer a solution, and that's when Hitler appeared and took advantage of the situation. So the Weimar Republic is an example of how even a democracy can act so foolishly that it erodes the currency to the point that people are willing to embrace a totalitarian regime even enthusiastically embrace one, just to end the pain. And what happened with the Weimar hyperinflation? Well, let's look at a couple of objective measures. Uh, one involving the value of the German paper mark to the U.S. dollar, and one involving the price of a loaf of bread. In 1918, at the end of World War I, it cost about eight German marks to buy one U.S. dollar. So the mark was worth about 13 cents. But by the end of 1923, at the end of the Weimar hyperinflation, it took more than four trillion, that's four million billion German marks to buy one U.S. dollar. That means that the German mark had decreased in value by a factor of half a trillion and a lot of that occurred in just one year, between 1922 and 1923. At the end of 1922, a loaf of bread cost 160 German marks. But by the end of 1923, a year later, the same loaf cost 200 billion marks. By that standard, the German mark decreased in value by one and a quarter billion times in a single year. Those are objective measures, but how did the hyperinflation affect people's daily lives? How did they manage to deal with that? Not well. Here are some examples of how it impacted their daily lives. A newspaper that cost one mark in 1922 went up to 70 million marks by the end of 1923. At this point, prices were doubling every four days. 
You might start your day by reading a newspaper, but if you wanted to buy a coffee on the way into work, you sometimes had to use a wheelbarrow full of cash to pay for the coffee. Once you got to work, you needed to negotiate a raise because the money was being devalued every day, so you'd need a new raise every day. And you didn't wait for a weekly or biweekly payday to get your wages because the money would have lost its value by then. Instead, you not only got, got paid daily, you got paid twice a day because you or your family needed to rush out and immediately spend the money before it lost its value. And when you collected your wages twice a day, you might just pile up all the bills on a scale and weigh them to estimate how much they were worth, because that was easier than stopping to count them and add up the value of the individual bills. After the money was weighed, you or your family would carry your wages in a suitcase because there was no way to fit them into a wallet. Of course, a suitcase stuffed with cash is heavy, and so one man discovered that his suitcase had been stolen, and only the suitcase. The thief wanted the valuable suitcase, but he emptied it out of all the money first so he wouldn't have to carry it away with the weight of all the worthless cash inside it. While you were at work, you would use money as scratch paper to write on because it was cheaper than to do that than to buy a notepad and take notes on it. After work, if you and your family went out to dinner at a restaurant, you need to negotiate the price of the food when you ordered it because the price would go up before the food was ready to serve. Needless to say, restaurants stopped using printed menus because the prices were constantly going up and that would make the printed menus instantly obsolete. Back at home, you and your wife might cram money into your stove to heat the house because it was cheaper to burn the money than to burn coal or wood. You also might use money in place of wallpaper because the money was cheaper than the wallpaper was. And you couldn't afford toy blocks for your kids to play with, so they'd play with bundles of money in place of toy blocks. That's how bad things got during the Weimar hyperinflation between 1921 and 1923. And this wasn't an isolated case in human history. There have been other cases of hyperinflation. Indeed, there have been a bunch of them. Hyperinflation happens whenever a government pursues the policies that cause it, and that's happened a bunch. Other cases of hyperinflation include France in the late 1700s, Austria and Hungary and the Soviet Union in the 1920s, Poland in the 1920s and again around 1989, in the 1940s, China, Greece, Malaya, and the Philippines experienced hyperinflation. Bolivia did in the 1970s and 1980s. Zimbabwe did in the 80s. Brazil did in the 80s and 90s, as did Peru. Argentina did in the 1990s, as well as Yugoslavia. North Korea did around 2010, and Venezuela did in 2016. So this can really happen anywhere if governments pursue the wrong policies. Yes, the Weimar Republic is very far from being the only example. The Weimar case isn't even the worst, though it is the most studied because Germans have always been good at documenting things and keeping records, making them easier to study in hindsight. 
As a matter of historical curiosity, the largest denominated bill of paper money that was ever printed was the 100 quintillion pango note. That's a one followed by 20 zeros, which Hungary issued as a result of their hyperinflation in 1946. The Hungarian government also got ready and printed a bunch of one sextillion pingo notes. That would be one followed by 21 zeros, but they didn't end up issuing them to the public. How did these countries get out of their hyperinflation situations? Germany today is a prosperous, economically developed country. The typical solution they used, including Weimar Germany, was to scrap their existing currencies and introduce new ones. Once a currency has lost all its value through hyperinflation, it's essentially dead, and there's no realistic way to breathe value back into that currency. So you eliminate it and introduce a new currency. Uh, the Weimar Republic cured their initial round of hyperinflation in 1923 by getting rid of the German Papiermark and replacing it with a new currency called the Rentenmark. At the same time, they slashed 12 zeros from the face of the bills, meaning that one of the new Rentenmarks was worth a trillion of the old Papiermarks. Isn't it hard to introduce a new currency? Yes, it puts society through a tremendous amount of stress. People have their bank accounts and mortgages valued in the old currency, and introducing a new one creates all kinds of headaches. It produces a really messy situation, and all the adjustments that need to be made result in a lot of people getting hurt. But it can be the only way out of an even worse situation. And the Weimar Republic wasn't the only time Germany had terrible inflation problems. Another occurred just after World War II. At the time, the Allies were running the German economy, and they'd imposed a bunch of policies that caused inflation to go out of control. People actually stopped using money and reverted to barter as a means of economic exchange. And how'd they get out of that situation? Economist Milton Friedman explains. Early one Sunday morning, it was June 20th, 1948. The German Minister of Economics, Ludwig Erhard, a professional economist, simultaneously introduced a new currency, today's Deutschmark, and at one fell swoop, abolished almost all controls on prices and wages. Why did he do it on a Sunday morning? It wasn't, as you might suppose, because the stock markets were closed on that day. It was, as he loved to confess, because the offices of the American, the British, and the French occupation authorities were closed that day. He was sure that if he had done it when they were open, they would have countermanded the order. It worked like a charm. Within days, the shops were full of goods. Within months, the German economy was humming along at full steam. Economists weren't surprised at the results. After all, that's what a price system is for. But to the rest of the world, it seemed an economic miracle that a defeated and devastated country could, in little more than a decade, become the strongest economy on the continent of Europe. So the German Minister of Economics bypassed the Allies and introduced a new currency, the Deutschmark, which was a key component of fixing the problem. 
after which Germany went on to become an economic powerhouse well, in Europe. With our discussion, I'd like to take moment. a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Scott S., Tom S., Miguel G., Donna P., and Alvin W. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. So, Jimmy, let's move on. And what can we say about inflation from the reason perspective? We've talked about inflation and deflation and the problems that can result from hyperinflation. Now it's time for you to explain... What is it that causes inflation and why is the government responsible? The answer to this question can be found in the answer to hyperinflation. Think about what happens when hyperinflation occurs. The price of food goes up, but people still need to eat, so somehow they find the money to pay for the food. So if you have people eating the same amount of food, but the price they're paying for it goes up, that means you have more total money being paid for the food. And that means there's more total money in circulation. After all, if Weimar Germany hadn't been printing the Papier marks by the truckload, there wouldn't have been enough of them in circulation for people to carry them around in suitcases or cart them around in wheelbarrows or make bundles of them for their kids to use as an alternative to toy blocks. Originally, there weren't that many bills in circulation. But as the money lost value, the government printed more of them. And when the money had lost all its value, they introduced a new currency, the Rentenmark. But they didn't print a Rentenmark for every Papier mark that was in circulation. That wouldn't have done anything. If a Rentenmark was worth the same as a Papier mark, the prices would all be the same. What they did instead was print one Rentenmark for every trillion Papier marks. That means they dramatically lowered the number of pieces of currency that were in circulation. And that's what cured the hyperinflation. So we see a relationship between the money in circulation and the rate of inflation. This is the key insight we need to understand why inflation happens. It's directly related to the amount of money in circulation. Can you give us a simple, easy to understand example of how that works? Sure. Let's do a few mental experiments using a simplified economic system. In an economy, people use money as tokens of exchange for goods and services. Usually, the money doesn't have any significant intrinsic value. I mean, there have been cases in history where people use salt for money, in which case you could eat the salt, so it had some intrinsic value. And in, for a while, in certain parts of America, tobacco leaves were used as money, and you could always smoke the tobacco. But most of the time, money has very little use on its own. 
If you're in a country that uses gold for money, you could melt the gold and turn it into jewelry or you know, plate something with it. But there aren't that many things that gold has been historically good for. Historically, it's primarily decorative to make things look pretty. Similarly, if you were in Weimar, Germany, when they were using all the paper money, you could use the money for scratch paper or wallpaper during hyperinflation. But before that, in normal times, the real value of the money wasn't the physical things you could do with it. The value was in the goods and services you could buy with it. Money isn't supposed to be useful on its own. Instead, it's supposed to be used as a symbolic token for goods and services that you can buy. So let's imagine a simplified economy where the only form of money that exists is the penny. And to keep the economy small, let's imagine that the government has only minted 100 pennies. Now, let's imagine the goods and services that are available in this economy. And since we're keeping it simple, let's represent those with jelly beans. And yes, I had a purpose for the jelly bean analogies earlier. It was to set us up for this. So in our economy, the only goods and services people ever want are jelly beans. And let's suppose that at the moment, there are 100 jelly beans in existence. Every time someone eats a jelly bean, a new one gets made. So we always have 100 jelly beans on the market. And there are always 100 pennies in circulation. In this economy, what's the price of a jelly bean? That'd be one cent. Correct. If there's 100 jelly beans and 100 cents to pay for them, the natural exchange rate is one penny per jelly bean. But now let's suppose that the people in our simplified economy get a little more energetic. They start producing extra jelly beans, and soon there are 200 of them on the market. But the money supply stays the same. There's still only 100 pennies in circulation. So with 200 jelly beans available and only 100 pennies to pay for them, what's the natural price of a jelly bean now? Um, a half a cent. Right. If there are 200 jelly beans on the market and only 100 cents to pay for them, then you should expect to get two jelly beans for each penny, making the price of a single jelly bean half a cent. But suppose there's a disaster. Suppose three quarters of the jelly bean warehouses burn down, and now there are only 50 jelly beans left on the market. But there are still 100 pennies in circulation. What happens to the price of jelly beans? Well, it would quadruple. It goes up from half a cent per jelly bean when there were 200 on the market to two cents per jelly bean if there are only 50. Right. If you slash the goods and services that are available, but the money supply remains constant, then the price of the goods and services goes up. The goods and services are now scarcer, so people have to pay more to obtain them. If we have 50 jelly beans on the market and 100 pennies in circulation, the natural exchange rate would be two cents per jelly bean. In these examples, we've allowed the number of jelly beans to go up and down while the number of pennies in circulation stays constant. Well, what happens if we do the reverse? Well, let's take a look and find out. Suppose we go back to our original situation where there are 100 jelly beans and 100 pennies. In that case, the natural exchange rate is one to one, one penny per jelly bean. But suppose that the government decides to mint more pennies and increase the money supply. So they mint 100 more pennies, and now there are 
200 pennies in circulation, and the only thing to spend them on is jelly beans. So with 200 pennies in circulation and 100 jelly beans, what's the natural exchange rate? Well, it should double from one cent per jelly bean to two cents per jelly bean. Right. 200 pennies divided by 100 jelly beans would be two pennies per jelly bean. And notice what's happened to the cost. It's gone up from one to two cents. That is inflation. Our our simplified economy has experienced 100% inflation by doubling the amount of money in circulation without changing anything about the goods and services that are on the market. Well, couldn't customers hold the price down by refusing to use the extra pennies the government has made? In theory, yes, but then those extra pennies wouldn't be in circulation. People would just be hoarding them rather than putting them to use, and that's very unlikely to happen. If I'm a jelly bean customer and I have extra money in my pocket because the government has just made some more money, I'm willing to spend more of it to get the jelly beans I want, and why shouldn't I? In this simplified economy, there's nothing else for me to spend my money on. Jelly beans are the only goods and services available, so they're the only thing I can spend my money on, and if I I have more money, that's how I'm going to use it. Similarly, if the jelly bean producers know that their customers have more money, they're going to be incentivized to raise their prices, and all of them will do so, because if one of them doesn't raise his prices, he'll be left behind and won't make enough money to pay for goods and services when he needs them. As a result, increasing the money supply invariably leads to a rise in prices. That's just another way of saying that putting more money in circulation leads to inflation. We've been using a simplified economy that uses pennies for money and that uses jelly beans to represent goods and services. But real economics, real economies are much more complex than that. Yes, they are. In a real-world economy, there are millions of types of goods and services that are available on the market. And this means that when the supply of money in circulation changes, it takes a while for the natural exchange rates to emerge. The natural exchange rates aren't as clear as in our simplified examples. You can't just divide the number of jelly beans by the number of pennies to see the natural exchange rate. As a result, there's a delay between when the new money is introduced and when the prices go up. Consequently, when the money supply increases, people feel good. And hey, I've got some extra cash. Let's go buy some extra goods and services. Those jelly beans aren't going to eat themselves. But eventually, the natural exchange rate between the money in circulation and the goods and services on the market asserts itself, and prices go up, and inflation occurs. And when that happens, people feel bad. A psychological fact about humans is that they are loss-averse, meaning they really don't like to lose things. In fact, humans generally would rather avoid losing something of value than gaining something of the same value. Psychological studies have repeatedly demonstrated that people hate losing things more than they enjoy gaining them. This is due to our evolutionary history, because our ancestors grew up in an environment where resources were scarce. Much of the time, they were living on the edge of starvation, and so it was very, very important not to lose the resources you had. As a result, we're programmed to strongly resist losing things that we consider valuable. 
I mean, consider the following thought experiment. Suppose I offered to flip a coin with you. If the coin comes up heads, I will give you one million (laughs) dollars. But if the coin comes up tails, you have to give me one million dollars. Do you take the bet? Well, no way. I don't happen to have a million dollars in extra money lying around. And very few people do. But even millionaires usually won't take the bet, even though they stand to gain just as much as they stand to lose. Most millionaires would rather avoid losing a million dollars, even though they're just as likely to gain that amount. In other words, they want to avoid losing what they have, and so they're loss averse. The only people who would take a bet like that are the super, super, unless they're crazy, are the super, super rich, like billionaires for whom a million dollars could be trivial. In those cases, a million wouldn't be of real value to the person and they'd be willing to risk parting with it. But if you raise the stakes to something that is valuable to them, like now we're making a billion dollar bet, the same principles apply. They'd rather not lose what they have, even if they stand to gain just as much. Humans just don't like to lose significant amounts of the resources they have, whatever level those resources are at. They remain loss averse. So how does that play into the role of the government in causing inflation? When the government first expanded the money supply, people felt good. They had extra cash and prices hadn't yet gone up to compensate. But then when inflation happens, they feel bad because they're loss averse. Their money has decreased in value due to inflation. The money has lost value. And so people feel that they have lost something valuable, and they have. With the new higher prices, the money doesn't go as far as it used to, and that hurts. People don't like it, and so they turn to their politicians for a solution. At this point, the politicians see two options. They could do nothing and just tell the people to get used to the new economic situation. Or they could do what they did before to make people feel good and expand the money supply again. That will generate another burst of seeming prosperity, but it will only be temporary. Eventually, the ratio between the size of the money supply and the amount of goods and services on the market will reassert itself, leading to inflation. And so, we have a vicious cycle starting. Each time the government expands the money supply, it causes inflation, which causes pain, which causes them to expand the money supply again, which causes more inflation. And that's why over the last hundred years, the United States has experienced constant average inflation. How much inflation has it experienced in that time? Well, this is 2022. So the most recent year for which figures are available is last year, 2021. If you use an online inflation calculator to go back a century to 1921, you find that between 1921 and 2021, we experienced so much inflation that $1 in 1921 was worth $15.45 today. 
In other words, if you bought something for $1 in 1921, you'd have to pay $15.45 for it now. That works out to a total inflation rate over the last century of 1,445%. Now, you might look at that and conclude that between 1921 and 2021, the U.S. government gave us an average annual inflation of 14.5% per year. But that ignores the way compounding percentages work. Actually, the average annual inflation rate in the U.S. has been just 2.77%. That's less than 3%. But because of the effects that compound over time, the inflation rate of less than 3% has compounded over 100 years to an overall rate of almost 1,500%. So like I said, these small rates can compound over time and really sneak up on you. And that is what the U.S. government has done over the last century. It has devalued our money to the point that today a dollar is worth only six and a half percent of what a dollar was worth in 1921. So a modern dollar is worth just six and a half cents by 1921 standards. Suppose the government had only grown the money supply a bit and caused a little bit of inflation. What alternatives would the government have to the ongoing cycle of inflation that we've seen? Inflation is caused by a mismatch between the size of the money supply and the amount of goods and services that are on the market, which is to say the size of the real economy. But the real economy is affected by many things, including supply and demand for housing, stocks, and commodities, there are effects on the real economy from natural disasters and personal preferences and government policies that influence behavior. But the real economy is so complex and based on the decisions of so many people that the government isn't in control of it. As a result, they can kind of play around the edges of the real economy with various policy changes. But ultimately, inflation is a function of the size of the money supply compared to the size of the goods and services on the market. If they don't want to increase the money supply, then the only alternative long term is to keep it steady or shrink it. And if you shrink it, that will result in deflation. You mentioned earlier that people who are in debt don't like overall deflation because the dollars they have to pay back are now worth more than they were before. But what if people haven't gotten themselves burdened by debt? Wouldn't the public like it if the price of goods and services went down overall? In principle, yes, people love it when they can pay less for the same thing. But there are problems and they're the mirror image of the issues with inflation. You see, some people actually make money during inflationary periods. So when deflation happens, those people who made money under inflation get really bent out of shape. More broadly, however, there's that initial rush of pleasure when the ca- when the money supply expands and people are happy because they have more cash. That's because of the lag between when the money becomes available and when the prices go up to compensate. The reverse happens in deflation. There's a lag between when the money supply shrinks and when prices go down. 
As a result, there's a period where people are feeling the pinch because there's less money available, but prices are still high. And because humans are loss averse, the initial pain they feel when the money supply shrinks is greater than the initial pleasure they feel when the money supply expands. People might be happier in the long run if they waited for the prices to deflate, but they typically don't have the patience. And that can lead to another type of vicious cycle. Milton Friedman explains, Inflation is just like alcoholism. In both cases, when you start drinking or when you start printing too much money, the good effects come first. The bad effects only come later. That's why, in both cases, there's a strong temptation to overdo it, to drink too much and to print too much money. When it comes to the cure, it's the other way around. When you stop drinking or when you stop printing money, the bad effects come first and the good effects only come later. That's why it's so hard to persist with the cure. In the United States, four times in the 20 years after 1957, we undertook the cure. But each time, we lacked the will to continue. As a result, we had all the bad effects and none of the good effects. Well, that's kind of depressing. We tried multiple times, but didn't stick it out, resulting in pain without gain. It is depressing, but it doesn't have to be that way. Other countries have had the will to do what's needed to tame inflation. For example, in the 1970s, Japan had a real problem with inflation, but they had the willpower to fix the problem. As Milton Friedman explains, Japan, on the other hand, by sticking to a policy of slowing down the printing presses for five years, was, by 1978, able to reap all the benefits. Low inflation and a recovering economy. But there's nothing special about Japan. Every country that has had the courage to persist in a policy of slow monetary growth has been able to cure inflation and at the same time achieve a healthy economy. So there's hope. You know, our cultures are different, but human nature is the same everywhere in the world. And if people in America are properly educated and incentivized, they can do what's needed to tame inflation, too. And what would it take for that to happen? One of the things it may require is for things to get worse before they get better. In I, Claudius, there's a prophecy given by the Sibyl. What groans beneath the Punic curse and strangles in the strings of purse before she mends must sicken worse. What groans beneath the Punic curse is Rome itself, because Rome destroyed the city of Carthage in the Third Punic War. Rome strangles in the strings of purse because of the financial mismanagement of the emperors, and the Sibyl was prophesying that Rome would have to get worse before it would get better. The same thing could well happen in America and in other countries with inflation. There's that constant temptation to print money when prices rise and whenever the real economy contracts. And if that process runs uncontrolled, it can lead to the hyperinflation and economic collapse like we saw in Weimar, Germany, creating huge amounts of social pain. America runs the risk of having something like that happen. It may not be as bad because of the lessons we learned from the Weimar example, but Congress has a constant desire 
to spend, spend, spend. And so, as they say in Little Abner, government expenditures have never been so high. That, combined with the tendency to print more money, could lead the U.S. into a serious economic crisis. Should that occur, the press might actually start doing its job and help the public understand the causes of the economic problems instead of just putting nakedly partisan spin and misdirection on it. Or it could just continue to be nakedly partisan. But if it didn't, the public might get the education it needs to fix things, and the pain caused by the economic situation could incentivize them to do it. But it may take a really painful economic situation to achieve those goals like it did in Germany. After its painful experiences with hyperinflation, Germany has maintained a much lower tolerance for inflation than the U.S. has, and it's kept it low. It may take similarly painful experiences for the American people to acquire the willpower needed to say no and actually tame inflation. And hopefully we would learn to do that before the dollar loses absolutely all of its value and we have to introduce a new currency. Before we conclude, we should look at the other side of the equation. You said that inflation is caused when more money is put in circulation than the amount of goods and services. Couldn't you also fix inflation by simply growing the real economy so that the amounts of goods and services grows to match the money supply? In theory, yes. If you held the money supply steady and waited for the economy to grow, you could fix inflation that way. That's essentially what Japan did in the 1970s. And we're blessed to live in a period in world history in which population growth and technological innovation have allowed the real economy to expand. More people means both more workers and more consumers, which increases the size of the real economy. And improved technology means productivity gains per worker so that a single worker can provide more goods and services than before. These are great things, but you can't count on them going on forever. We've alre- we're already in a situation where the birth rate has fallen below the population replacement level in many parts of the world, and that means that there will be fewer workers and consumers in the future causing the economy to shrink creating economic pain, especially with all that money in circulation. Would technological improvements help help offset that by allowing the remaining workers to be more productive and keep the economy growing? Maybe, but maybe not. We can't count on the kind of rapid technological improvements we've had in the last century or so to keep going. A key reason that technology has been improving lately is that computer technology has been getting better. In 1965, businessman Gordon Moore proposed a way of measuring and predicting how how computer technology was improving. What he proposed is known as Moore's Law, and it essentially holds that computer tech doubles in power every two years. That's why computers cost so much less than they did 10 years ago for the same computing power. Moore's Law held good for a long time, but it can't go on that way forever. There are limits to how small you can make the components that computers use to do their calculations, and we're hitting those limits. 
That's why there's such an interest in quantum computing as a way of accessing the super tiny quantum level for computers to do their processing work there. But there are signs that Moore law, Moore's law will break down or even that it has broken down. And computer tech may very well hit a wall in the future. In 2005, Moore himself said this about his law. It can't continue forever. The nature of exponentials is that you push them out and eventually disaster happens. Since Moore's law involves doubling, it involves an exponential. Exponential trends never last. They always hit a limit. And as the saying goes, anything that can't go on forever won't. So we can't count on the kind of dynamic, dramatic technological improvements that we've been seeing to continue to increase the productivity level forever. At some point, either in our lives or afterwards, technological improvement will moderate. Also, there's another problem, which is that the size of the real economy is dependent on the independent decisions of millions of people. And in a free society, the government isn't in control of those. That's the difference between a free economy and one where the decisions are made by the government. In a society like ours, the government can only influence people's choices by the policies it implements. Right. So the government does not have direct control of the size of the real economy. Nobody has direct control of that. What the government does have control of is the money supply. And so it's the government that's ultimately responsible for inflation. What would you say to the argument that it isn't the government, but the Federal Reserve that actually controls the size of the money supply in America? I'd say that's a dodge. Uh, there are a bunch of things one can say about the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank in the U.S. And we're likely to have a future episode devoted to the Federal Reserve and some of the criticisms and theories about it. But the Federal Reserve System, or the Fed, was created by the U.S. Congress and the Constitution gives ultimate control of the money supply to Congress. So even if the Fed controls the size of the money supply directly, it does so at the behest of Congress and under the control of Congress. Congress, and thus the government, bears ultimate responsibility for this issue. That is why I say that the government causes inflation because the government is fundamentally in control of the money supply. What about the fact that we live in a democracy? The government's supposed to be answerable to us, to the people. If our current representatives aren't doing what they should with the money supply, we could vote them out and have them change the laws and policies regarding it. We could. And Milton Friedman makes this point. I understand very well that the real culprit are not the politicians, are not the central bankers, but it's, it's I and my fellow citizens, I always say to people when I talk about this, if you want to know who's responsible for inflation, look in the mirror. It's not because of the way you spend your money. Inflation doesn't arise because you've got uh, consumers who are spendthrift. They've always been spendthrift. It doesn't arise because you've got a uh, businessman who are greedy. They've always been greedy. Inflation arises because we as citizens have been asking you as politicians to perform an impossible task. We've been asking you to spend somebody else's money on us, but not to spend our money on anybody else. Everybody talks against inflation, but what he means is that he wants the prices of the things he sells to go up and the prices of the things he buys to go down. And that brings up a great point. 
sellers want prices to go up, while purchasers want prices to go down. Inflation is good, at least in the short run, for sellers, while it's bad for consumers, a point we may talk about in the future. But the larger point is that because we live in a democracy, the people are ultimately in control. They can cut through the media distortion and the lies and spin of the current generation of politicians, both left and right. And they can elect people who will enact laws and policies that avoid the perils of both inflation and deflation, who would keep the money supply in line with the size of the real economy, whether it grows or shrinks in the future, and thus who could spare people all the pain that accompanies the mismatches between the two. And that's an empowering message. So the government has and does cause inflation, which is why I make brief mentions of that fact to make people aware of it and encourage them to learn more about it. But ultimately, the people are in control, which is also why I mention it, because I don't believe in complaining about things that we're powerless over. It's because the people have real power and can make a change in this, just like the people in Germany have, that I point out that the government causes the inflation we experience. As they say in the 1956 musical Little Abner, us voters is connected to the nominee, the nominee is connected to the treasury. The government controls inflation, but in a democracy, we at least broadly control the government. And it's important to be aware of both of those things. One of the things politicians are famous for is finding ways to mislead and deceive the public so that they don't get voted out of office. Do they play tricks with the issue of inflation to mislead the public? Oh, they do. Uh, sometimes they'll blame inflation on greedy businessmen or on foreign countries. But they also do it by playing with the inflation numbers that get reported to the public. Here in America, the key number that gets reported by the Federal Reserve and thus gets reported in the press is what's called core inflation. And what is core inflation? It's the rate of inflation that the U.S. has experienced if you take out the prices of food and energy. The alternative is known as headline inflation, and it's the actual amount of inflation that the country has experienced with food and energy costs included. Why would the Fed want to promote core inflation rather than using headline inflation? Well, there are several arguments that seek to justify this. One of the most prominent is that food and energy prices are too volatile, meaning they go up and down too much. As a result, the argument goes, if you want to make economic plans for the future, you should focus on more stable things whose prices won't go up and down so quickly. These more stable elements in the economy are thus said to represent the core of what's happening in the economy and thus the things you ought to base your plans on. And what's the argument against using core inflation? It's just not capturing the real rate of inflation. Food and energy are two of the most important things people spend their money on. Everybody has to eat, they have to buy food, and everybody needs energy, whether it's gas for their car or electricity for their homes. And food and energy are two of the major expenditures that households make each month. If the price of food and energy suddenly rises, 
it causes pain in people's pocketbooks and people notice. But the government comes out with figures that ignore the rise in food and energy prices. So they can say, hey, inflation's not as bad as you think, and thus mislead the public and try to calm them down. At least that's one of the criticisms of the way politicians and their subordinates report inflation here in the U.S. Do all countries use core inflation as their key measure of what's happening with the economy? No, some countries like the European Union, the United Kingdom and India have mandates that their institutions use headline inflation as their key indicator. This means that their institutions are held accountable to what their citizens are actually experiencing in terms of inflation instead of having a buffer that shields them from the actual experiences of their citizens and lets them mislead their citizens by focusing on a different figure. Which figure do you think the U.S. should be using? I'm inclined towards using headline inflation rather than core inflation. As Mark Twain said, there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. And my instincts are that focusing on core inflation rather than headline inflation ends up misleading the public by a clever use of statistics. I'd also note that the U.S. government didn't used to do this. They used to calculate the inflation rate differently, but then they changed the way they do it twice in the 1980s and in the 1990s. And both times they changed it in a way that the resulting number would report less inflation than previously. At least on its face, that suggests they're playing games with the numbers to make the rate of inflation look like less than it really is so they can pacify the voters. But here on Mysterious World, we try to consider arguments from more than one perspective, so we'll have links to pieces that argue both for and against using core inflation. One is a speech by Federal Reserve Governor Frederick Mishkin, who argues in favor of using core inflation, and one is a speech by another Federal Reserve officer, James Bullard, who argues against using core inflation. Both of them go into more detail than we can here, so you can check them out. How extensive is the problem of people playing games with the economic numbers that are being reported? This is not an area I'm an expert in, but I am aware of additional criticisms that are being made. For example, we'll have a link to a brief article from the Asia Times that claims that the U.S. inflation rate is being significantly underestimated because of the numbers being used to calculate it. The article states... Shelter accounts for about a third of American household expenditure, and the cost of buying or renting shelter is up nearly 20% over the past year. Yet the Consumer Price Index for Shelter, reported January 12th by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, showed an increase of just 4.2 over the last year. Private surveys conducted by the big rental sites Zillow and ApartmentList.com show increases of 13% to 18% during 2021, and the Case-Shiller Index of U.S. home prices jumped 18% in the year through October. Who are you going to believe, to paraphrase Groucho Marx? The U.S. government or your own eyes?
As this article illustrates, it's possible to look to other indicators than the ones the government promotes to try to get a sense of what's really going on. And we'll have a link to a site called ShadowStats that seeks to offer better statistics than the ones the government promotes. The site also has background papers with arguments for why they see problems with the government numbers, so you can check those out. And to give you an illustration of what you'll find, I recently checked the U.S. inflation rate, the one the government favors, and according to the government statistics, the inflation rate in the U.S. was 1.4% a year ago, but now it's jumped dramatically to 6.8%, which is bad. By contrast, ShadowStats uses the same measure that the government did before the 1980s. And according to them, the inflation rate today is actually 15%. So by the pre-1980 metric that the U.S. government itself used, inflation is actually twice as, as high as the already bad rate that the government is reporting. So before we close, what can we say about inflation from the faith perspective? Does it have a moral dimension? It certainly does. While money is a symbolic entity that has no intrinsic connection to the value of goods and services, it impacts people's lives. Money is a symbol that has the meaning and power we give it. As a result, when the money supply grows or shrinks out of proportion to the size of the real economy, people have to make adjustments in their lives. Those adjustments can be moderately painful with moderate inflation, or they can be hyper painful with hyperinflation. But any mismatch between the size of the money supply and the real economy will cause pain, and it's immoral to inflict unnecessary pain on people. Is there a case to be made in favor of inflation, at least in some cases? In some cases, sure. If the money supply suddenly contracted below the size of the real economy, that would cause pain. And there'd be a case to be made for expanding it to rebalance things. But that's different than constant ongoing inflation. I've seen people claim that a constant low level of inflation is actually good because it will incentivize people to improve their productivity and grow the real economy. That's an empirical question that would need to be studied and investigated over time. And I'm open to looking at the evidence regarding that, though I haven't had the chance to do the needed reading yet. But I will say that I'm suspicious of this claim. If large mismatches between the growth of the money supply and the growth of the real economy are bad, as in hyperinflation, why should small mismatches be good in either direction? I suspect that neither moderate inflation nor moderate deflation is a good thing in the long run. It seems to me that the ideal would be to keep the money supply and the real economy in sync so that when the real economy grows or shrinks, the money supply does too, avoiding both inflation and deflation. But as I said, it's an empirical question that needs to be studied, but that's my suspicion. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the mystery of inflation? Inflation is caused when the supply of money in circulation grows larger and the quantity of goods and services on the market doesn't grow to match it. No institution has direct control of the real economy, but the government is in control of the money supply. As a result, 
the government causes inflation. Whenever inflation occurs, the government is responsible. So don't listen to lies, spin, and misdirection that would blame it on others, whether that's greedy labor unions, greedy businessmen, greedy foreign companies, banks like the Federal Reserve, or U.S. consumer habits. It's always and only the government and its policies that are ultimately responsible for inflation. But the government is responsible to the public. And the public has a tendency to want the government to print more money. This produces short-term benefits, but leads to long-term problems like inflation. And it can lead to catastrophic situations like hyperinflation if the process goes unchecked. Ultimately, the public needs to get educated on this issue and develop the willpower needed to avoid such situations. In fact, we need to do so with some urgency because our population is going to decline and we've already been buying time with technological improvements that can't continue at the same rate forever. The politicians who are in power at any given time always want to assure us that the country's in the very best of hands. But this is a lie. The current generation of politicians in Congress, of both parties, are only the latest manifestation of the problems that have led us to the current situation. If we want to avoid worse problems in the future, we need to get educated, get active, and elect new and better leaders. So, Jimmy, what resources can we offer to the viewer and listener on this topic? We're going to have a link to Thomas Sowell's book, A Basic Economics, which is really good. Also, Milton Friedman's book, Free to Choose. Also, just because I mentioned the prophecy of the Sybil earlier, we'll have links to Robert Graves' book, I, Claudius, and its sequel, Claudius the God and His Wife, Messalina, and the BBC series, I, Claudius, from the 70s, which is has disturbing stuff in it, but wow, it's really good. We'll also have a link to a uh, rap battle video that's just for fun. It's from 2010. They made it after the 2008 economic crisis. And in 2010, they had a couple of actors playing two very famous 20th century economists, John Maynard uh, Keynes and Friedrich Hayek, who had different approaches to, uh, to how to respond to recessions and so forth. So check that out. It's really fun. Also, we'll have a link, since I've been quoting it um, this episode, we'll have a link to the song The Country's in the Very Best of Hands from Lil Abner. Um, also, we'll have articles on the Federal Reserve, inflation, deflation, hyperinflation, the Weimar hyperinflation, as well as a video about the Weimar hyperinflation. We'll have uh, links to information about loss aversion, a historical U.S. inflation calculator, population decline, Moore's law, headline inflation and core inflation, how the Federal Reserve creates money. Then we'll have Frederick Mishkin's piece supporting headline uh, supporting core inflation, as well as James Bullard's piece criticizing core inflation. We'll have that Asia Times article on uh, alleging that the U.S. is underestimating the actual rise in housing costs. And then we'll have the site shadow stats so that you can see the alternative statistics to the ones the government promotes. 
Excellent. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this time? Well, uh, I thought we'd have a technology theme. Now, earlier we were talking about interest in quantum computing as a way of trying to get Moore's law to extend into the future so we can keep having rapid improvement of computer technology. But there are problems with quantum computing. And so we'll have an article on what if quantum computing is a bust, meaning we're not able to get it to work or we're not able to get it to work in the way that would let us continue expanding our um, our our broad-based societal improvement in computer technology. So this is kind of a cautionary piece saying, hey, even though this is an exciting technology, let's be realistic about what it may and may not do for us. So you can check that out. On the other hand, I also wanted to be positive, and even though there have been claims for the last 50 years that we are on the verge of getting fusion power, which would be really good and would let us do a lot of really great stuff, um, maybe we're on the verge of getting fusion power. So we'll have a link to an article proposing that. So you can, uh, if you're a little depressed at the prospects from quantum computing, you can be a little excited about the prospects of nuclear fusion. Awesome. All right. So that's it from us this time. We'd love to hear your theories about the inflation that the government has caused. Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. Remember to like this episode on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook and retweet it on Twitter. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And I want to say a special thanks to Oasis Studio 7 uh, for the video and animation work they have been doing on this episode and all of the recent episodes of Jimmy Eakin's Mysterious World. They've added a lot to the show, and so be sure and check them out. You can go to Oasis Studio 7, that's the number 7.com. A lot of people have really been uh, impressed with the new video that we're doing for the podcast, and you can see that video by going to YouTube.com. Slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, please uh, please like and subscribe and hit the bell notifications to get uh, to get an alert every time a new video comes out. I'm trying to grow my YouTube channel and I'd really appreciate it. So until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Quest. 
If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Catholics of Oz. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Oz. Well, there ain't no crooks up there, Pappy. As <laughs> far as I can see, there's a very nice mess of people. And I can tell you all this much, the country's doing just fine. Right, Sam? You is so right, boy. Them city folks and weans are pretty much alike. Oh, they ain't used to living in the sticks. We don't like stoner seamen, but we is in agreement. When we get down to talking politics, the country's in the very best of hands. The best of hands. The best of hands. The Treasury says the national debt is climbing to the sky. And government expenditures have never been so high. It makes a fella get a gleam of pride within his eye to see how our economy expands. The country's in the very best of hands. The country's in the very best of hands. The best of hands. The best of hands. The farm bill should be 89% of parity. Another fella recommends it should be 93. But 80, 95%, who cares about degree? It's parity that no one understands. The country's in the very best of hands. Us voters is connected to the nominee. The nominee's connected to the treasury. When he ain't connected to the treasury, he sits around in his thigh bones. They sits around in this place they got. This big congressional parking lot. Just sits around in there, you know what? Up there they calls it their thigh bones. Them bones, them bones, gonna rise again. Gonna exercise the franchise again. Gonna tax us up to our eyes again. When it gets them off in their thigh bones. The country's in the very best of hands, the best of hands, the best of hands. Them GOPs and Democrats each hates the other one. They's always criticizing how the country should be run. But neither tells the public what the other's gone and done. As long as no one knows where no one stands, the country's in the very best of They compound the collateral, subtracts the residues. Don't worry about the principal and interest that accrues. They're shipping all that stuff to foreign lands.